This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In one of his interviews, Putin tells the story about the rat. When he was growing up, they used to chase rats around that neighborhood. There's also this infamous story about the cornered rat. Chasing a rat. Following the rat. He fought this rat and he got this rat into the corner. And he just knew it was either the rat or him. This rat, when it was cornered, it actually attacked Putin and it jumped him. When I interviewed people for this podcast, I didn't ask anyone about the rat story. But pretty much everyone brought it up. In part, it's because it's a story that Putin himself also loves to tell. Here's how he described it in his autobiography, First Person. There, on the stair landing, I got a quick and lasting lesson in the meaning of the word cornered. There were hordes of rats in the front entryway. My friends and I used to chase them around with sticks. Once I spotted a huge rat and pursued it down the hole until I drove it into a corner. It had nowhere to run. Suddenly, it lashed around and threw itself at me. I was surprised and frightened. Now the rat was chasing me. It jumped across the landing and down the stairs. Luckily, I was a little faster, and I managed to slam the door shut in its nose. So I think this is something that became extremely important for Putin's psyche when he grew up. He probably promised himself not to be a rat in the corner. So he's the one always with a stick, ready to kill first. I've heard that story so many times, especially from different Russian oligarchs who were really scared to death, pretty sure that Putin was ready to use the nuclear arms uh, because they compared him to a rat in the corner. Putin tells this story as one of the most important lessons of his life. And I'm absolutely sure that he's very sincere in that it's just strange for like a world leader of his magnitude to have like a rat teach him a lesson. And we're all supposed to think that he's the rat. But sometimes I kind of think, well, you know what? You've cornered Ukraine, you've cornered us as well. And maybe perhaps it might turn out quite differently for him than he might have initially anticipated. I'm Julia Yaffe. This is About a Boy, the story of Vladimir Putin. Chapter 2, The Rat. There was nothing collective about the Soviet Union. Everyone was in, in the state of war with everyone. The social structure in these courtyards, it was based on violence. There were no intellectual competitions, sorry to tell you. It was all about physical power. Putin's way of answering that question was to threaten the reporter with the possibility of coming back to Moscow to be circumcised. Putin was born on October 7th, 1952, to parents who were in their 40s. His mother was 41, and at the time, she was considered to be very old to be having a child. But Putin's parents had already lost two sons, 
and had themselves barely survived World War II. His mother had nearly died of starvation during the blockade of Leningrad, and his father had been wounded in battle. For the rest of his life, Putin would recall, his father's leg would be bent like a wheel. The war had ended seven years before Putin's birth, but its scars were still fresh and they were everywhere. It was a country victorious, but it often didn't feel that way. The hope that winning the war would give people a better, freer life was quickly crushed, first by a massive famine, then by another wave of political repressions. For years after 1945, people lived on ration cards. Millions remained homeless, with thousands still living in earthen dugouts. Unlike in post-war America, life in the USSR was still incredibly difficult. Most of the 27 million Soviets killed in the war had been men. Of the men who did return, many were either physically or psychologically wounded, or both. Moscow, Leningrad, Kiev, all the big Soviet cities became crowded with men without limbs, with terrible burns, with grotesque injuries, many of them begging in the streets. And then one day, they all disappeared. Stalin decided that he didn't want his cities marred by the men who had saved his country and had all of them shipped off to remote locations. Russian demographers call this the age of no fathers, the era of Bezatsovshina. There were millions of orphans after the war and millions more children who were born to single mothers. The government needed more people and it promised these women that it would take care of their children in place of the father. As a result, one third of the children born in the first few years after the war were born out of wedlock. It was a baby boom produced with very few men. Millions of Soviet baby boomers didn't even know their father's names. Trauma is a topic that gets bandied around a lot in Western discussions about how people's experiences and the environment they grow up in shapes who they are as people. But that was true no less for people of Putin's generation. This is Andrew Weiss. He oversees the Russia program at the Carnegie Endowment. He's also the author of The Accidental Tsar, a graphic novel about Putin's life and rise to power. Most of the people who were killed in the war were men at the front. So for people of Putin's generation, there were entire swaths of them who didn't have fathers or whose fathers, when they were around, were badly damaged from what they'd endured in World War II. Things weren't much better for the women. It was on them to rebuild a shattered country. Almost all of them worked by law. They labored long hours only to return to a home without the modern appliances that American women enjoyed after the war. Few people had refrigerators, so every meal had to be cooked from scratch with whatever women could find in the store, usually after waiting in endless lines. They did laundry without washing machines, on washboards, and by boiling the clothes on the stove. New clothing was hard to find, so women spent hours sewing, darning, knitting. They didn't have vacuum cleaners or disposable diapers. Few homes had telephones, and almost none had televisions. In Russian maternity clinics in those days, expectant mothers were crammed into crowded, filthy wards. The overwhelmed medical staff barked orders at their patients, if they ever saw them. There were no painkillers. One newborn in 50 died before leaving the hospital. Men weren't allowed into maternity hospitals, where women stayed for a week postpartum, 
so fathers had to stand on the street outside with the other men, hoping to catch a glimpse of their new child or to wait for a letter. This was the world into which Soviet baby boomers were born, kids like Volodya Putin. The children of his generation, they're all born in the last throes of Stalinism. So we can you know, be pretty sure that their parents are pretty traumatized. This is Fiona Hill, former Russia director on the National Security Council and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. That's you know somewhat different, I would say, from American baby boomers. I mean, yes, their parents were being traumatized by the Great Depression and those whose parents had gone off to war, but the United States mainland was not devastated in the way that the Soviet Union writ large was. The post-war generation of the United States are those boys and girls who brought the change, who organized 1968, who declared make uh, love, not war. This is Mikhail Zygut, Russian journalist and the author of All the Kremlin's Men. And they were raised with completely different values because they were, if not wealthy, but they were not miserable from the beginning. And they had television. They had completely different image of how this world is functioning. In no country in the world does the average citizen have a greater money investment in his home than in the United States of America. Unlike their American peers, who entered a world full of optimism and rising wealth, with a car in every garage and a chicken in every pot, Soviet baby boomers inherited a world characterized by despair and deprivation. From the outset, it was survival of the fittest. In episode one, I introduce you to my father. Now you understand why he immediately told us how many years had passed between the end of the war and his birth. 14. We have no TV. Telephone was very rare. So the whole life was outside. For uh, playing soccer, we definitely didn't have uh, cleats. And in the Soviet Union, to, to get new shoes was always a problem. For hockey sticks, we used to go to the forest, find the uh, crooked branch, cut it, and we're using the axe, just make it flat. And every Sunday, we were walking, picking up some potatoes and Russian sauerkraut for the week ahead. And was this to supplement the food you could or couldn't get in stores? Exactly. It was a big part of our food supplement, yeah. And I still remember, like, my mom was coming after her work, and we had to go to the store to buy some stuff. And lines were crazy, and you know, like it was disorganized. It killed all the free time for these people. Soviet Union, it was very atomized society, despite what people used to think that it was a collective. People were at each other's throat for everything. Jobs, food, commodities, you know. That was everyday life, you know. Our mothers were staying in lines, you know, for hours in order to get, you know, some piece of meat or in order to get some shoes. This is Russian investigative journalist Evgenia Albats. And people were fighting inside these queues. That's why, you know, we Russians, we know how to survive on nothing. You know, we know how to live on nothing. It's basically around this time that alcoholism in the Soviet Union takes off. For all the men scarred by the war, there were no antidepressants and no therapy. But there was vodka. And because in Russia no one likes to drink alone, boys and young men became their drinking buddies. 
People drink a lot. I told you uh, Russia was not famous for their wine origins. So they drink. <laughs> <laughs> so the alcohol of choice was hard alcohol, vodka. I started to lose my classmates in their early 40s. In Leningrad, the city where Putin was born, the trauma was especially acute. In the city that Putin grew up in, in Leningrad, the war was not only present for 900 days, it was a scene of mass starvation, cannibalism by necessity, just horrors. It was really a strange city. There were no pets at all. No dogs, no cats, nothing, because uh, all the animals were destroyed during the war because people were eating cats and dogs. So children in post-war Leningrad didn't know how dogs looked like. A million people had starved to death, and the survivors were haunted by what they had just experienced. For decades to come, until the very ends of their lives, no matter how comfortable their circumstances, survivors of the siege, the Blakadniki, hoarded food, including breadcrumbs and used tea bags. Vladimir Putin was born in a haunted city in a devastated country. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Vladimir Putin was born on the wrong side of the tracks in a rundown, revolutionary St. Petersburg apartment building. His mother was in her early 40s, so older than a typical Soviet mother. He was this third kid. One of the kids before him had died in infancy. The second one died during the war. And so he was a bit of a miracle baby, and his parents apparently doted on him. His father had a, a physical handicap as a result of wounds that he suffered at the front. Putin described his father's legs as being permanently bent at a weird angle. His father worked in a factory. He built subway cars. And his mom was some kind of menial worker, not someone who had any kind of education or status in the Soviet system. And day-to-day -day life was hard. Like most people in the Soviet Union after the war, Putin and his parents lived in a kommunalka, a communal apartment with one kitchen, one bathroom, shared by multiple families. This is from Putin's autobiography, First Person. The factory gave Papa a room in a communal apartment in a typical St. Petersburg building on Baskov Lane in the center of town. Before the war, my parents had half of the house in Peterhof. They were very proud of their standard of living then. So this was a step down. 
Living in a Komunalka was a defining experience for tens of millions of Soviets. Komunalkas were carved from homes seized by the state after the revolution of 1917. They had never been intended to house multiple families. In Leningrad, they were often the palaces and sprawling apartments of the nobility and the bourgeoisie. Those who hadn't fled the country, been shot, or disappeared into the gulag were given mandatory new roommates. So, like, a family would get a room, and I'm talking, like, two generations of a single family, three generations could live in that one room. Here's Andrew Rifkin, a Russian-American writer who grew up in St. Petersburg. And in this apartment, you would have three families like that, five families like that. Uh, You would have a kitchen which would have, uh, like, five stoves, and everything would sort of be divided. So you could have conflicts within a family, and then that family would have conflicts with other families, and there would be nowhere to, to go to. Like, you know, if you had a fight with your parents, you're just a couple of feet away from them if you wanted to leave. And of course, for young couples, the Soviet Union had these very strict moral laws where, you know, if you're not married, uh, you can't rent a hotel room because why? Why would you rent a hotel room if you're not married? So in that sense, for a couple to be together, it would also be near impossible. The relations inside of that apartment were always very tough. People did not like each other. People would fight each other. People would do everything that they could to get someone else's room. And often, you know, during the Stalin years, they would call the secret police and they would say, well, such and such, they have forbidden literature or they've been badmouthing Stalin. And the secret police would come. They would obviously arrest everyone. The room would become vacant and the family that made the call would move in. So real estate, always an issue. I did a story for some communal apartment in downtown Moscow where 27 people live in four or five rooms. They had one toilet and no bathtub. The usual smell of kisle kapusta. Sour cabbage. Sour cabbage. And this smell of something sour, something spoiled, because usually... There were probably one refrigerator for all people, so they had to keep their cooked food by the windows. Anyway, you really don't want to experience this, trust me. But far more than the apartment itself, the defining space for Putin as a child was the dvor. Literally, a dvor is a courtyard, either the inner courtyard of a large building or a patch of land between the prefab panel buildings springing up after the war to address the housing shortage. But it was so much more than that. Given that parents were largely absent in the post-war Soviet Union, either dead, traumatized, or working long hours to make ends meet, children spent most of their time in the dvor. It was also a place to escape the cramped and volatile atmosphere of a komunalka. More than home or school, the dvor was the center of their solar system. This was where Soviet baby boomers, especially boys like Putin in working-class areas, learned everything about the world and about other people. This was their finishing school. Dvor is a, is a yard in between of the apartment buildings. So we were returning back from school, and, you know, we immediately went out to Dvor, and, you know, life was there. 
People have been to London, you know, there's a lot of these beautiful row houses with little parks in the middle. But imagine those being surrounded on all sides and not really a kind of a garden there, but kind of a rough patch of something, maybe some grass and, you know, maybe a bit of gravel. And that's the inner kind of courtyard. And so it's a really contained space. Lots of literature kind of comes out of the courtyards. I remember very well there was a Jewish novelist who had a novel called The Vort Courtyard. And it was all about that kind of life. This is David Remnick, editor of The New Yorker, and once a Moscow correspondent for The Washington Post. You know, kind of hard scrabble, grandma's gossiping on the stoop on this part of the courtyard, maybe some garbage in the other corner. We don't really have this here. Social life played out in the courtyard, love played out in the courtyard, crime played out in the courtyard. Fights, gossip, arguments. The Dvor was Volodya Putin's world. He spent most of his time there, and he certainly preferred it to school. There were two courtyards joined together, like an air shaft, and my whole life took place there. Mama sometimes stuck her head out the window and shouted, Are you in the Dvor? I always was. What Putin does is tells the stories about just what it's like emerging into that dvor, either on your way to school or on the kind of way back, and encountering all the other neighborhood kids in which there is, you know, as in any neighborhood, a kind of a hierarchy of kids, size, age, relative toughness. And he has to hold his own, because in the dvor, that's kind of where every part of social life is played out. And it's the kind of first ladder in the way to where you're going to end up in life. It was where you socialize, where you have friends, where you you meet people. That's your first team. My dad grew up in a dvor in a blue-collar suburb of Moscow, not unlike Putin's. The lessons he learned there are still totally ingrained in him decades later. Growing up in the dvor after World War II built my worldview, built my basic life skills, how to survive in this world, how to deal with people, how to achieve goals. You got an MBA. All right. What was more important? The war or the I, MBA? I think probably, yeah, probably the war. Here again is Andrew Rifkin. I had a friend who worked in the Kremlin for its propaganda wing. Now, even though he graduated from a very prestigious Moscow university with a degree in Russian literature, his upbringing was far from downtown Moscow. In fact, he grew up on the outskirts of the Soviet capital in a dvor that was much like Vladimir Putin's. Now, that friend of mine, he imbibed the dvor culture. He understood the intricacies, the unwritten rules, everything. And in fact, it formed in him a certain worldview that regardless of his very good education, it still, it was on the inside. It was at the core and it allowed him to read people, to judge people, which, as he often said, got him out of really bad situations. Now, at one point, Vladimir Putin decided to award my friend for what I'm guessing was stifling free speech or something like that. I asked my friend what his impression of the Russian president was, and he told me, when I approached Putin to shake his hand, I got the feeling that he was going to sucker punch me. My friend's dvor worldview, 
that system of values, that system of recognizing danger, of reading people, it kicked in way before his mind processed this idea that, you know, one of the most powerful people in the world is standing in front of you. He saw Vladimir Putin for what he actually was, a kid who was going to punch you in the gut. The notion of a courtyard may seem trivial to Americans, but as we'll see, the Dvor is critical to understanding Putin's thinking and actions today. About a Boy, the story of Vladimir Putin is written and hosted by me, Julia Yaffe, directed by Valerie Thomas, produced by Margot Gray, edited by Chris Basil, mixing and mastering also by Chris Basil, production assistance by Bill Schultz, theme music by Kravastok. Special thanks to John Kelly, Ben Landy, Andrew Rifkin, Alex Bigler, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Moura Curran, Josefina Francis, Kurt Courtney, and Hilary Schuff. Listen and follow About a Boy, The Story of Vladimir Putin, an Odyssey original podcast in partnership with Puck on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.